Welcome to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast. Each episode is designed to help the busy healthcare professional break down all aspects of heart failure into different topics so you can listen on the go during the course of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. The AAHFN is a specialty organization dedicated to advancing nursing education, clinical practice, and research to improve heart failure patients' outcomes. You can learn more about the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and subscribe to this podcast today at aahfn.org. I am Beth Davidson, immediate past president of the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and your host for this episode of our Heart Failure Focus podcast. Dr. Adamson is a longtime supporter and advocate for RN and APP practice and is our guest today. His CV is long and impressive, spanning roughly 25 years. For those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Adamson, he is currently the Divisional Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for the Heart Failure Division at Abbott. In this capacity, he's responsible for global development of Abbott's heart failure formulary, and that spans cardiac resynchronization therapy to cardiomems to mitroclip to VATS. So Dr. Adamson joined Abbott, which was formerly St. Jude Medical in February of 2015. Now he received his MD and his Master's of Science in Cardiovascular Physiology from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. He also has a Bachelor's of Science with dual majors in accounting and physiology from the University of Central Oklahoma. His clinical interests, I would say, focus on disease management models, remote monitoring, and collaborative efforts of our heart failure and EP teams. Many of you will recognize that he has served as the principal investigator or on the steering committees of several of our large landmark randomized clinical trials in the heart failure space. He was co-PI of the CHAMPION trial, which, as you know, demonstrated the efficacy and safety of the CardioMEM system, leading to its approval in May 2014. So with that, thank you, Dr. Adamson, for joining us this morning. Beth, thank you. Thanks for that introduction. It's great to be with you. Well, if I recall, you were one of the original physicians which advocated for the development of AAHFN and supported us from the beginning. And I believe that you actually spoke maybe at our inaugural meeting down in Miami. I did. And, you know, it's been very important, I think, for the heart failure community to recognize the excellent input of heart failure management and care that advanced practice nurses bring to the bedside. And at that time, I think this was an emerging concept that needed a lot of support. And the leadership at that time was, was very keen on developing a society, and we, we agreed. I did get asked to speak to 300 nurses on South Beach in Miami, and, and I think I remember asking Robin Trupp if this was a trick question or if I was being pulled into something. But I had a great time. In fact, I remember it very well. It was a wonderful scientific interaction as well as a great program, even for the first one, which was really amazing to me. Well, we we appreciate your support. And yes, it's hard to reflect back now to think, you know, our first annual meeting and what our attendance was at that time versus how the organization has grown through the years. And we appreciate your support. And it's been a fun journey along. And you're right. I think 
the development of the multidisciplinary team and taking care of heart failure, the model has changed some from the years. And we all recognize the importance of that and raising nursing's contribution. So we appreciate your support for that. So when I was introducing you, I talked a little bit about this Abbott portfolio and your wide expanse of responsibility. So I'm curious, you know, your Abbott's got cardiac resynchronization therapy. There's the MitraClip, which has been a game changer. We've got CardioMEMS, we've got LVADs. So thinking about you personally, and you're trying to juggle all that and move these initiatives forward, what's some of your biggest challenges? Beth, I think I undoubtedly, obviously, would never be able to do my job without a remarkable team. And in every function within Abbott, it's been a real amazing experience for me. I mean, you recognize I spent 20, as you mentioned, over 25 years in clinical practice, seven years ago, joined industry, and then about three and a half years ago, joined Abbott as they acquired St. Jude Medical. And so coming into a 130-year-old company can be pretty daunting. I mean, it can be kind of scary, honestly, but I've noticed that this company has the wisdom of 130 years and yet recognizes the need to be svelte and be sort of VC-minded to make sure that we stay caught up with the environment and caught up with technology. Cardiac resynchronization therapy is where I started in heart failure, in clinical trialdom, and in the Medtronic-sponsored NSYNC studies, as well as a miracle trial that led to the first FDA approval of CRT in patients with heart failure. We then developed, as you, as you know, this concept that all of these therapy delivery devices are seeing a lot of information from the heart in order to deliver their therapy. For example, an ICD has to monitor the heart rhythm in order to determine if it needs to shock a potentially lethal arrhythmia. All that differentiation between an atrial versus ventricular arrhythmia, all of those algorithms that were developed required what I called sort of the afferent signal from the heart. We then decided that there would be a potential for those signals to be harvested, to be analyzed, to provide information that could be helpful, not just for the electrophysiologist, but for those that were caring for the patient and managing their heart failure. And that's what developed essentially heart rate variability, intrathoracic impedance, and other pieces that therapy delivery devices could provide. So for the first time, essentially, developed an implantable device that could be remotely monitored and provide physiologic information that we felt at the time could be helpful in managing patients with heart failure. All of that started a remarkable next 20 or so years because, you know, it just continued to snowball with technologies, with opportunities to change our focus on what's being monitored. All of the while, the central theme didn't change. It was how do we gain insight into the patient's pathophysiology while they're at home where all the trouble begins. And, you know, we spend such a sliver of time of the patient's life with them in our little things that we do in the office of this 15 minutes of fame they get in front of the doctor or nurse. And it's time, I think, you know, that we really embrace the fact that that life needs to be monitored to improve the outcomes. Yeah, I think back to as you alluded to when this all started, and and now we have learned how valuable things like impedance, heart rate variability, 
activity. You know, some of these devices can tell you what position the patient is sleeping in. And I think, gosh, how far we've come. But I'm also excited to know that companies like Abbott and some of your competitors, honestly, are always thinking, what's the next thing? What else can we do? How do we better monitor this heterogeneous disease that's got multiple pathways and things that we're still trying to figure out? So it's a fascinating space. And I think Abbott has done a a good job of recognizing its strong history, but also trying to lead the way. It is because of the individuals, honestly, and big corporations are big corporations and are a set of standard operating procedures, but the people that are responsible for the development of technologies and innovations, I suspect for every company, have a very patient-centered focus. And I think that's how I felt so comfortable and happy to get up every morning to go to work in industry. It is because, you know, the patient focus I've always had as a physician is still here. And the things innovations bring to the patient can't be simply things to sell. They can't be little widgets that are cool to look at. They have to be useful, outcome-changing innovations that intervene on this horrid disease. I think, I think you know, it's very important for us to step back and say, what is it like to have an exacerbation or a decompensation of heart failure? Remember, I think we, as heart failure practitioners, kind of get glazed over a little bit about that. But, you know, this is a, this is a sensation of, of drowning. I mean, patients intermittently drown and they don't know why this happens many times. Sometimes they do, but many times they don't. And it kind of sneaks up on them. And what we've discovered based on this ability to monitor patients continuously with implantable devices is that the whole process of decompensation that we get into with clinical signs and patient complaints and changes in weights, those kinds of signs and symptoms all occur very late in the process of decompensation. And all of this stuff that leads to the decompensation occurs long before the patient feels it. But the horror of drowning intermittently, not knowing if the ambulance is going to get to the emergency department soon enough for you to survive, all of the effects that have on the patient's family who, you know, wives or husbands who are following the ambulance, hoping they get to see their spouse again, you know, people who have to take off time. And frankly, Beth, in this day and time, when we have very understaffed hospitals and overflowing with COVID patients, it's another layer of horror, you know, that has led to patients not seeking care. All of that being said, if we recognize how horrible it is for the patient, then it's easy to try our hardest every day to think about how do we make that better. When you were talking about keeping the patient at the center and making things patient-centric, I was smiling because I was thinking that's one of the reasons that this organization and the people who make up this organization respect And I have a great appreciation for you because that so lines up with what I think heart failure nursing is about. And in fact, what our organization is, I don't know if you recall this, but our tagline is actually patients are the heart of what we do. I do. And you you speak to that exactly. Absolutely. And I, you know, again, I, I think that the key element here is that, you know, Heart failure management is a process. Heart failure management requires intervention, requires monitoring, requires knowledge, requires a lot of things. 
but it requires mostly an understanding of, of how you're going to make a patient, a, per, a person with heart failure better. And I think the AAHFN really does get this. And I've seen the statements, I've seen this, this organization now bloom into what it is today. And, you know, to me as a premier, if not the premier organization of society, that benefits patients the most. I think when you really look at other societies, not being negative about them, but they by nature and by design are a couple of steps further removed directly from the patient. And I think, you know, when you talk about clinical trials all the time, when you talk about all that kind of stuff, which you do, but that's not all you talk about, you really are objectifying the data set and calling a data set rather than a patient. And I think you've done a great job of maintaining that, that finger on the pulse, literally, <laughs> so that patients and their interests can continue to be promoted. Another thing that I'm really grateful for is this remote monitoring capability especially in light of that healthcare landscape today. You know, I think about our heart failure clinic before the COVID pandemic, we certainly could do virtual visits, but was that our bread and butter? It wasn't, you know, heart failure teams, I think rely so heavy on the physical exam, you know, see, touch, feel that we sort of maybe minimize the role of virtual visits, but, you know, come March, 2020, we had to turn that on overnight. And then trying to figure out how to manage these patients best you could, you know, looking at a patient on Google Zoom and then trying to figure out oh, where else can I get information from? So I think about CardioMEMS and the device diagnostics that we get from some of our CRT devices. Really grateful for that. I think that's only been another reason, you know, that device therapy continues to explode is that now people even see expanded uses of it. I hope so, because we've spent 20 some years trying to make this important. <laughs> and I think, you know, one of the things that's very important to recognize is that before the pandemic, we weren't paid to do that, really. And I don't think any of us are in this just for the money, but I think most of us are, have a job in order to make money. And so if we have an activity that takes time and takes effort and takes knowledge and takes training, that will not be reimbursed, then most of us will gravitate towards the piece that will be reimbursed. And I think the key element that made that landfall for remote monitoring and virtual medicine was the reimbursement. And I would really hope that as we move forward, that we would recognize the value to the patient, the value to the physician and nurse, and not go away from it because we don't have complete data. Because I think one of the things we saw in CardioMEMS, for example, and other hemodynamic monitoring systems was that, you know, we had finally distilled the signal noise down to the lesion of the disease. 25 years ago, if I'd asked you if, you know, would it be helpful if I could give you filling pressures in your heart failure patient anytime you wanted it without having to come to the hospital, what would you say? I mean, you would say, of course, you would have said what everybody else said. Of course, I'd find that useful. <laughs> and then we have to do 25 years of prospective randomized clinical trials to prove its effectiveness. Okay, we had to do that, and it's proven effective. And so now I think that we are forced into this virtual medicine process, get paid for it. We really do need clarity in terms of what is happening inside the patient 
Because remember, as you mentioned, when we do physical examination, why do we look at jugular veins? Why do we do abdominal jugular reflux? Why do we listen to lungs? We do it thoughtfully in order to estimate right atrial pressure, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, pulmonary artery pressure. We do it to really assess indirectly all of those pressures. Well, you know, now we've figured out that if we could just provide the pressures, you don't have to do all that stuff because all that stuff's about 50-50 right, you know, and it requires the patient to be right in front of you in order to perform it. Because as you mentioned, it is not easy to see jugular veins in face-to-face visits, <laughs> to be quite frank. And it's, I find it just probably impossible to really see jugular veins in most people by telephone. So I, I really think that the, that the innovations, thank God, were there. And then, you know, this acceleration of acceptance of virtual medicine could be probably the only silver lining that could have come from this plague. Absolutely. We are a big cardio men center. I love it. I talk a lot about, you know, it's almost managing patients by exception in that, you know, you can pull up your panel of patients and, you know, we set personalized limits triggers for their PAD. And I can look at my list and if they're in line, I can keep moving. And then I only have to really worry about the ones that are out. So I think it's phenomenal. What I would even love even more, because now I've got PA systolic, PA diastolic, mean, I can actually see the waveform. What I'd really love to also see is a cardiac output, because <laughs> I know that's in there. <laughs> yeah. So that's the vision. So there's two real visions here. One is to provide the cardiac output as a marker really determined by an estimate of stroke volume, and that's being regulated by the FDA currently. The other piece I think that is very important is to do what you just described, which is set the limits, set the thresholds, and then kind of step back and remember what we do with diabetics. You know, they continuously monitor their glucose. They try to keep their glucose within a certain range that the doctor or nurse sets up. They know what to do when that glucose goes outside that range, whether it goes too low and they have to drink a glass of orange juice or it goes too high and they have to take insulin. They know what to do because they've been taught what to do. I think heart failure patients are vested enough in their disease process to learn what to do. The other piece of this goal and this vision is to bring the patient into that loop so that they can see their pressure, they can see where they lie between your thresholds, and then your prescription would be available to them depending upon where their daily pressures are. And so they can not only get feedback that they're updating or they're uploading their pressure, they can see what their pressures are, they can see where they are, where they're supposed to be, and then they have your prescription immediately to respond if necessary to excursions, as you said, you know, management by exception. So a lot of that work, I think we actually have done this experiment called Laptop HF and patients loved it. They love the freedom, the locus of control change, and they, their, their whole lives changed when they took control. Because think of the other piece of the heart failure journey for the patient. How many times have you had a patient come to you and say, Beth, I, I'm going to miss my grandchild's graduation from high school. And you ask, well, Why? And they say, because it's going to be 200 miles from you. They are so dependent upon the routine and the safety net that they've created with their caregivers in a good disease management program that they are tethered and they can't get a life beyond that. Their locus of control is dependent upon those that they trust. And there's good reason for that. 
But if we can free them, if we can give them this information, if we can give them that freedom, and, the, and again, I say this locus of control thing because it's actually a quantifiable metric of life. And if we give them that back, I think, you know, all of a sudden our patients' lives are completely different and they can do the things that they, you know, talk about quality of life. That's not even going to be assessed with KCCQ or any of the other things we have. I mean, I think that's a good point. It's like taking the concept of self-care and really maximizing that. So, you know, it's more about than the patient just knowing, hey, I'm in trouble. It's that next step. What do I do about it? Exactly. With that, okay, my PAD today is 32. I do this and I move on with it. So yes, that's a satisfier for teams that would also decrease the burden or the workload on the teams who are managing these patients. But then patients can make adjustments, sort of monitor the response and move on. So I think that's a great point. So I'm going to put you on the spot just a second and switch gears a little bit and tell me how did the withdrawal of the Medtronic bad hardware, how did that impact you and your Abbott teams? I'm sure that was a big lift for you all. But more importantly, what do you think that means to patients too? Beth, we did not look at this as a positive thing. It was not at any level fitting into what we saw as a goal for mechanical circulatory support. One of the problems currently with the image of MCS is that it's a last ditched effort for dying patients. And then they have to take this humongous risk of stroke and pump thrombosis and all the driveline infections and GI bleeding. And it's a miserable life is the perception. The reality is totally different. The HeartMate 3 device has completely revolutionized outcomes in mechanical circulatory support patients and, and in almost elimination, if not elimination of pump thrombosis, the lowest stroke rates ever. And this is in, even in real world Intermax-based data. And so our job is not to compete. Our job is to bring awareness of this therapy to providers who care for people who, who never even know they have an option and they die as a result of not getting even to say no, they don't even have the chance to say no because they don't even get, get told there is an option because of the biases that are in people who don't even make the referral to an advanced center because they, it's an a priori assumption that they wouldn't, they, the patient wouldn't like those risks. And so the HVAD departure was not good in that regard. And then to the poor patients who had HVADs, they hear these things on, t- on television, the manufacturer is not going to, continue manufacturing because of risks and their risks were no different the day before they heard that than the day after they heard that. But on, in their minds, they are, they are aware of something they never knew of. And there was panic in many patients. So, I mean, it was not a good thing, you know, so market aside and all that, we, we were already, you know, 85% of the pumps or our heart meet three devices are already 85, 90% of the pumps being used anyway, but this was just not, we didn't need any more black eyes on the therapy. And I think we're, we're going to have to come out of that to recognize what HeartMate 3 and this pump innovation has, has brought to these patients. Yeah, I think our center is solely a HeartMate 3 center, so we didn't have any hardware patients, but I have mm-hmm. colleagues across the country who do. And, and to hear some of their stories about patient anxiety and, and some patients wanting, even though their pump seems to be fine, you know, asking for a replacement. And I'm just thinking... That's a hard journey for those patients and those teams trying to support them. And on the market perspective, 
sometimes, you know, competition is also good. I mean, you know, just to think about having only one option. So I know it was, it was an impact for the market, but I agree it's been challenging for our patients as well. What is your best guess when we might see a total, you know where this is going, a totally implantable VAP? That's what everybody wants. And I know that there's, I know Abbott's got HeartMate four, five, six, seven, eight, ten prototypes, but what do you think really? Like, are we talking a couple years? Are we talking five years, longer, shorter? I don't. First of all, Beth, I think one of the things that has been a concern to your point of no competition is that Abbott will sit back and not innovate anything. And I think that's not true. We not only continue our, our efforts to innovate, but we want to innovate in a way that will bring this therapy to people that deserve it, deserve to at least say yes or no to it. Drive lines in the presence of an external drive line certainly is an issue that a patient has to deal with when they think about mechanical circulatory support. But vast majority of people who are talked to as if the doctor or the nurse were oncologists think the driveline is less of a problem when they realize that in six months they have a half or three quarters chance of being dead. If I came to my oncologist, I don't have an oncologist, if I came to an oncologist and they told me there was a lesion in the head of my pancreas and I know you feel great and we're going to give you this horrible chemotherapy and make your life miserable and do a surgery that's going to scar you up, but we'll take the cancer out and save your life. What do most people do? They don't go home and say, I don't want to have surgery. I don't want to feel bad with chemotherapy. They schedule it immediately and they get it done. If we talk about heart failure, advanced heart failure, in the context that it needs to be talked in, the mortality associated with a true advanced heart failure patient is remarkably high and much higher than almost all cancers. And yet we take this whole laissez-faire approach to say, ah, I'm sure you won't, you know, you'll be bothered by having something outside your body. And patients are like, yeah, I don't want that. I'm going to die. Well, <laughs> again, we have the chance now of prolonging their life. So our goal here is not only to innovate, but to actually try to get the innovations of several hundred millions dollars to the patients who deserve them because they're not getting it. Secondly, to your point of removing the driveline, obviously that requires percutaneous charging of batteries and it charges a lot of other stuff. And, and frankly, Beth, you know, battery technology has not kept up with any of the other technologies that we have today. And so we are still in the chemistry-based batteries that require recharging. And, you know, it, it is an issue of all companies that are dealing with this process and the concept to understand how best to configure a charging system and a power source that is not externalized so that the patient doesn't have to have the drive line. I think there's going to be exchanges for that, honestly. I mean, there's going to be batteries that have to be implanted, percutaneous charging platforms that have to be developed, and then all of that stuff has potential for replacement, and we have to figure all that stuff out. So there's a lot to this all for the reduction of or the removal of the driveline. And I think that's a laudable goal. I think that we definitely, we are undoubtedly progressing towards that process. But what we want to do is make sure that when we do that, we're not going to have another set of issues that doctors are going to say, yeah, but if you didn't have to replace the battery every three years, everybody would use this. Because we've met a lot of the 
perceived needs that the community is needed. And yet there's no, no more patients being offered this therapy than 10 years ago. I sort of like when you were using the analogy of the oncology patient and, you know, I've said this before, but your point is well taken. If somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, they are immediately referred to an oncologist. And if they're not, they're sued for malpractice. Exactly. But we have patients who get these heart failure diagnoses. And quite honestly, many of them don't even get a general cardiology referral. Even less than those get a consult with a heart failure specialist or an advanced heart failure team. And I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. You know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. There's nobody in the world who doesn't see a pink ribbon or uh, the NFL wearing pink cleats that knows what breast cancer awareness. But you think about the number of patients that are dying every year with heart failure. You know, we don't have that kind of recognition. We need a ribbon. (laughs) Uh, And we need a lot of efforts. We need a lot of efforts to uh, bring awareness and, and and drive clinical trials and research and things to where, where patients' mortality actually drop. Well, you know, that's another interesting thing in the sort of mix of oncology and how things with cancer work. I mean, as you know, when a person has maybe a hematologic cancer, most of the time they go into a protocol that's being evaluated in the context of a clinical trial. They may be comparing protocols, both of whom have some level of effectiveness, but there is no question. I mean, you're going to either go into this arm or that arm. Consent, of course, is taken. But in the confines of I have cancer and I'm going to die without this, consent is, is less of an issue because of the way it's presented. And I think that we as heart failure practitioners are loving, kind, and hopeful people, which we are. And I remember my first order of business for most patients referred to me with heart failure was to establish that there's hope for them. Because, you know, by the time they would get referred to me, everybody was like, ah, well, we've done everything we can do. There's no hope for you. Let's see if Adamson could do something for you. And so I think if we are able to recognize the mortality and morbidity associated with this disease and able to portray that to the patient, all of a sudden the urgency for care is the patient's duty. And I think for long, too long and long enough, we've been somewhat paternalistic in medicine and told patients what they need to do and when they need to do it and how much they need to do it and what they don't need to do and listen to me and everything will be fine. And if it isn't fine, it's because you didn't listen to me. (laughs) You know, I think that that whole mentality has to change such that the patient needs to understand their disease as much as they can, but not only that, understand what can be done for them. And I think if they choose not to pursue those things, that's their choice. But on the other hand, if they don't even know it's there, that's the frustrating thing that that I see that we do as a community, not the heart failure community necessarily, but even sometimes in the heart failure community, but certainly in the primary care world and in the general cardiology world, surveys that we've done represent that, you know, the knowledge base essentially that's being used to make these referrals or make recommendations to patients, that knowledge base is probably 15 years old and is based on information and outcomes that really are not contemporaneous. And so I'm hoping that, that as we focus on that, we'll be able to get the therapies we have already accessible to patients who need them the most as we innovate to bring new and better, better support devices onto the market. Thank you so much. Your responses have been so thoughtful. 
And as we start to wrap up, I want the listeners to get a glimpse of you as an individual, how gregarious and funny and warm that you can be. And that's hard to bring across on a podcast. So just a couple real whimsical questions for you. Sure. If you could have dinner with any historical figure, either currently alive or in the past, who would you choose? I'd choose Jesus Christ immediately. Yeah. What a fascinating dinner that would be. Yes. And you have quite a background, right, in religious studies. I'm sure some people don't know that. If you want to say something about that real quick. Sure. Well, I started my my educational career in Bible college and did you know, did some some work as a minister and and certainly recognized that healthcare delivery is a remarkable ministry. So I that that's when I kind of segued into the whole process of my my degrees. But but you know, fundamentally helping people and bringing acceptance, hope, and love is you know the basis of what we all should be doing, regardless of your religion. It's just you know, if we all did that, what would the world be like? Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic background story that I'm not sure everyone knew about you. And lastly, if you could give your 18-year-old self a piece of advice, what might, <laughs> what might that be? Well, Beth, I guess you're, you're assuming I can remember back that far. But, you know, I, I think I would tell myself, be comfortable with who you are. Because I think we don't even know who that is until we're about 24, 25 years of age. And the things we get into at 18 to 20 largely arise from the fact that we don't, we don't feel comfortable with ourselves and we need something else to make us feel comfortable. But if we feel comfortable, if we embrace life, embrace ourselves and, and move forward with what it is that we find joyful essentially to do, then all of a sudden our career choices are much easier we don't get stuck in, in a training program that we can't get out of, and then we're stuck with a life that we can't get out of that we hate. I can't tell you the number of people that I've met who tried to make a decision about their life and how they're going to spend it when they're 18 years old. I mean, think about it. We're supposed to find, well, what are you going to major in college? What are you going to do when you grow up? Well, heck, I don't know. <laughs> you know. And that should be the answer. And you should feel comfortable with, heck, I don't know. And then understand as you grow you know, what makes your, makes your clock tick. And if you find that out, then it's a secret of happiness in my mind. And the choice then of who you spend your life with is one of the most important things that is either going to be good or is going to be bad every single day of your life. And I think, you know, these are the things that I think I would tell myself and I would hope that, you know, I think our world again would be a whole lot different if we all had a little bit less frustration, a little bit less anger, a little bit more love, a little bit more hope. And in these times, I think those are the issues that will make us better. Yeah, I think that's really sound advice, especially where we are now with the challenges that we've had with diversity, inclusion, you know, justice, social media has sometimes made some of these issues harder. So being comfortable in yourself and moving forward, I think that's great advice. And lastly, where can our listeners hear more or follow you? Do you have a Twitter account? Are you on yeah, LinkedIn? No, I don't, I, I don't do. I do LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, but I do have a similar to what you're doing here. As you know, you've been a guest on my podcast, Between Two Ventricles on Spotify. And we, we do that once a month. And it's a real fun time to talk about heart failure. I do have a, a LinkedIn page. And so I'm happy to link up with folks and 
and share what Abbott's doing as well as what we're doing personally. And so that's my social media outlet. So anytime, you know, between two ventricles is about a 20 minute podcast. And it's, it's really fascinating. And I really do appreciate you being a guest to talk about the really outstanding things that AAHFN has done and are, and is doing. And I see the vision to be only better things in the future. So thank you. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I know that your day is probably jammed pack and this continues to be a challenging time for healthcare. So I'm wishing all our listeners some resilience, patience, and good health. Thank you so much. Thank you, Beth. You've been listening to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast, brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. To learn more about the AAHFN and to subscribe to this podcast, please visit aahfn.org. We'll see you next time on the Heart Failure Focus Podcast.